everybody, and welcome back to The Human Element, Kara's podcast focused on finding ways to inject humanity and insight into modern marketing. Today, I'm joined by Abran Maldonado, co-founder of Create Labs Ventures, Kanene Io Holder, AI Integration Manager for DIGPT at Create Labs Ventures, and Mark Prince, SVP, Head of Economic Empowerment at Dentsu. And then our trusted and true, always returning guest, Michael Liu, EVP, Head of Innovation at Kara. Welcome, y'all. Thanks for joining us today. All right. So we're here today to cover two big topics in the industry, diversity and AI. And I couldn't think of a better group of experts to do just that. But before we dive in, do you mind telling us a bit about your roles and your focus in the day-to-day? Sure. So I am the co-founder of Create Labs Ventures. I'm also the OpenAI ambassador. A lot of people don't know what that means. Bram Adams wrote a great article on this recently after the big OpenAI Dev Day. We were basically a, a group of geeks out in the space learning about GPT that were handpicked by the OpenAI team. It's about six or seven of us now to help them product test, test in, in alpha stages, new models, future models, and, and give feedback and, and support the community at large. So that's been my role with OpenAI for about three years. In addition to that, we run Create Labs Ventures and we we launch a bunch of our own products that we feel like are needed in the community. I'm Canadian Holder, so I am the AI Integrations Manager for DEIGPT. So Abram brought me on a few months ago and I was thrilled and honored and excited to dive deep into something that is changing by the millisecond called AI. <laughs> um, it's actually rapidly changing, what, every three months now? Every three seconds Basically. of what, yep, it's constantly changing. So I come from actually an education background over 15 plus years in the classroom. I was director of history for the most part, and then sometimes director of arts, mostly middle school, but I've done K through 12. And I was also an off-Broadway performer. And But really what got me into AI is that I have a bachelor's of science in speech pathology. So the notion of large language models, neural networks, how the brain works, how the brain acquires information, processes information, schema. So like literally every time I go to an AI conference or I'm reading about AI, I'm like, oh, this is like straight up linguistics, <laughs> you know, specifically for the large language models. But just writ large, how AI is constructed on the back end, a lot of that has to, they're mirroring and mapping the brain which is what we had to study in, in order to understand language. And so the ethical and inclusive AI comes in through the notion of, again, speech pathology was how do we accommodate for people who have communication disorders? How do we make sure that everyone is set up for success? And I think that sometimes the conversations about AI or the AI models that are existing are being planned to be released literally any second now because of OpenAI's new initiative that we, we you get a GBT, you get a GBT, like, Where's the inclusivity in that conversation? Is it just, is it about the money? Is it about the productivity? Or is it also those things and the inclusivity? And so ironically, the classroom, speech pathology, also the diversity training actually sets me up for, you know, this slam dunk called AI and specifically DEI-GPT, which is a large language model that is a closed data set that I helped curate. I help to curate the data that goes in there that is research and best practices about diversity and all indices of diversity, equity, inclusion, race, class, gender, age, religion, you name it, it's in there. We're not just focusing on one particular indice because, again, we're thinking about the global conversation about inclusivity. And so the data has to reflect that and change in real time. If there's a new trend, a new term, 
We're constantly researching that to make sure that our data is as up-to-date, accurate, and empowering and authentic as possible. So if I have to follow, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, I'm Mark Prince. I'm the SVP head of economic empowerment here at Dentsu. I've been here about two and a half years. And the economic empowerment practice is dedicated to creating more business opportunities with diverse owned media platform influencers and creators. I was a broadcast buying director in the first half of my career, which was a good platform in terms of, you know, really working with a lot of external vendors, negotiating things of that nature. So when I stepped into the diversity space, you know, and saw just basic things like not being able to get an appointment or get a call or get a meeting and the frustration that existed, you know, with our partners, that really was very eye-opening to me about being that portal of getting people, you know, within the agency environment. And if the partners are ready, making sure that they're getting to the right places and the right spaces. And if the partner's not ready, not just closing the door, explaining why they're not ready, what tools do they need to get ready so that they can come back, you know, and make a good impression and have an opportunity to do business. I sit within the investment arm of the team and that's really working across three different disciplines, working with our clients in terms of either creating goals, setting goals, figuring out how they're going to achieve those goals, working with our strategy and planning teams to make sure that we actually have the framework to support, you know, increased purchase of these outlets, you know, whether it be brine guidelines, brand safety, things of that nature that are really tailored to work, you know, to augment that. And then working closely with our external partners and really making sure that we're having two-way conversations. Like I said, I was a buyer for a number of years. And so sometimes we do more talking when we actually need to do more listening and leaning into the expertise, you know, that our partners have and really making it a cooperative arrangement, you know, so there are things they don't have that they need that we can help provide, you know, having that safe space to be able to say that and working together because we're trying to build this ecosystem and erase some of the inequities that have existed for decades because as everyone has seen the composition of the demographics of this country, you know, multicultural is the majority down. We want to make sure that our clients are positioned well in that space and that everyone is being spoken to in an authentic way. And you hear the word authenticity a lot. And sometimes I feel like it does get overused. But in some ways, I don't think it actually can be said enough because it's so true, particularly, you know, with millennials and Gen Z that are very savvy and they can see when a brand right away has been there for them versus just showing up for some of the tentpole events and things of that nature and not having that year round presence. So I'm really excited about this discussion because in some ways it reminds me a bit you know, when the digital revolution came on board. And so you had your linear outlets and channels, and there were those that chose to embrace digital early on and figure out how to incorporate it, you know, within their portfolio. And then there were those that, you know, ran away and avoided it, you know, quite honestly. And in some cases, those platforms didn't make it, you know, past that. I think sometimes it hurt the diverse own space even more so because you can also get into resources, accessibility, things of that nature. So as we see AI, I don't even want to say coming in, it's actually been here, you know, in different forms. It's just becoming a much larger piece. Want to make sure that doesn't happen again and that we're really embracing it, not only for our partners, but also, you know, for our clients and within the agency as well. And I'm so glad Michael's really leading the charge, you know, in some of these conversations because there is, I think, opportunity in making a more equitable space, you know, with the use of AI, you know, if everyone's willing and able to be open about it.
I'm Michael Liu. I'm the head of innovation at Kara. I get the pleasure to work with a lot of our teams and a lot of our clients on thinking about the future and uh, how is the media industry shaping up? How is new technology and how is consumer behavior really impacting one another and, and shaping how the future will look like of media? Uh, working with folks like Mark Prince and Diva Bronson on this specific topic that we're here to talk about today, which is diversity in the space and understanding the implications that new technologies have on society and culture and how it's going to change the way we interact with one another and how media is going to you know, evolve over time. And I think we need to have these conversations ahead of it because if we don't plan it properly, um, we'll be stuck in a situation that we're going to look back and be like, man, only if we thought about this critically and had the right conversations ahead of time. And so I'd say my role as as the head of innovation is to not only just look at technologies and see where they're driving us as society and then where it's going to lead into our, our media industry, but those questions of ethics, those questions of bias, those questions of should, are we doing the right thing and how do we do it properly and what are the questions and considerations we should be having as we start to approach these new things, that's going to have a huge shift on how we do our work and how we interact with one another. It's those types of conversations I really enjoy. So it's a pleasure to be on this panel with these folks here from Abram to Kanani and Mark to hear from them more so than me um, on their opinions and, and how they're navigating the space because they're truly the experts here. And I'm really happy to be able to, to contribute in some way. Well, that said, Mike, I'm actually asking one more quick question in one sentence. Can you define what artificial intelligence is in the context of marketing? I really enjoy how artificial intelligence is being discussed currently and being positioned by one of our clients actually is Microsoft and they're positioning artificial intelligence as a co-pilot. And I think that's just the perfect way to think about it, especially from a Dentsu and a Kara point of view here. We're seeing AI shape up to be a tool that enhances and empowers our workforce, not necessarily takes over or automates everything. So I think that notion of empowering our teams and removing that scary quote unquote aspect of it that we're always hearing about of, robots taking our, our jobs and automating everything that we do, but it's more so how does it act as a partner? And I think that Microsoft has done a great job of, of sort of wrapping it under this term of co-pilot, which essentially that's the way that I best look at it is, you know, artificial intelligence is coming here to help automate things that free us up. And then what do we do with that free time is what, you know, it's really going to differentiate us as an agency of what we focus on as a workforce and the discussions that we're having and more about strategy, more about creative, more about philosophy and ethics. Those are the conversations that are going to come out of this free time that comes out of it versus just like kind of thinking about AI of doing our job for us. Nadia and Abron, when you define AI to potential net new client, what's the, the one-liner, the elevator pitch? From a marketing perspective, reaching your audience in a more efficient and personalized way. I feel like marketing is such a, a it's definitely a hit or miss, you know, uh, business. And uh, there's so many times like I'm, you know, I'm Latino, I'm a, you know, Hispanic descent. And, you know, I watch, you know, Hulu and I'll watch a show and the, the Hulu commercial will come back in Spanish, right? Like all of my Hulu commercials are in Spanish. And I'm like, I don't speak Spanish, <laughs> <laughs> but that was the assumption of Hulu yeah. that because, it, you know, I came up on their demo in some type of data set that I'm a Hispanic household that to send all the, the commercials to me in Spanish. And it's it missed the mark. I mean, I get it. I get why they did it. But it was just wasn't, you know, aligned. It's one of those 
things where AI can just help you be more accurate, nuanced that are people, right? There, there's nuance in, in personalizing something to a customer for a particular product, and you can really understand them and, and make sure that things resonate in the right way. I would say that AI can help you leverage personal information to put the human back into the data. The goal is to feel like that product, that commercial, that piece of IP, whatever that is, the jingle, the graphic, the logo, makes you feel like that is a conversation between you and that company or that intention. And marketing goes really well when you feel like there is an alignment. When there's an alignment, it feels like that brand, that logo has said yes to you. So you then say yes to it. And so the gap is always, how do you get that person to feel like they've already been affirmed and valued, even though you don't quote unquote know who they are? And so, you know, I've been talking to a lot of ad tech companies (laughs) and also in the brand safety space. And, you know, I was a diva just the other day for the Brand Safety Summit. And so that's what I talked about on stage, which is like, okay, there's spreadsheets and there's an actual human being. And human beings are not thinking to buy, buy, buy 24-7. They're human beings. They fart. I said this on stage. (laughs) They fart. They're mourning. You can laugh. They're mourning someone. They have goals and dreams. They're just straight up distracted. They are not this little cell on an Excel spreadsheet of like, if we bombard them six or seven times, they're going to buy it. You could be showing them an ad when they just looked at a text message about a loved one just had a baby. like, And they could have added it to cart and they just didn't click buy because this other thing came up. So the goal is to be in a conversation with a human being that probably has an intention that you want to divert those dollars from one company or one brand to your brand. How do you do that? How do you get above the fray of the farts and the mourning and the new babies and the weddings and the and everything else? Is if that person feels like someone on the team, they don't know who's marketing, who's advertising. They just know, wow, I see me in this brand. I want it. And I see that I will feel better on the other side of this thing called purchasing or adding to cart. And AI, because machine learning, is you can leverage so much more information. Again, I'm talking to ad sex. So like, you know, data is gold, but I think AI makes data platinum. That's awesome. The other thing I think AI has the opportunity to provide is to fill a void where people can understand what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. So a lot of times people act off of their own lived experiences and can't necessarily relate to something that's outside of their purview. And I think one of the things that could be exciting about AI, if used properly, is really giving people tools and information to be able to better step into that space. You know, when I was a buyer, in some ways you tend to buy the things that you watch, that you like, you know, that sort of thing. And that's where it can get a little messy in this space if you have, you know, a monolithic set of decision makers, you know, that all have the same shared experiences. So I'm excited to see if, you know, AI can really provide that data, that insight, you know, and more of that ability to understand other shoes and other experiences as people are making marketing decisions. 
I love that. That's great. I mean, that's exactly what today is all about. This conversation is, you know, creating how AI can create more inclusion and diversity. So I think that's perfect segue. We'll talk about four things about how AI will impact and we'd love to hear the team's thoughts on this. So how do we feel about AI impacting culture? How will that happen if it will? Yeah, in our work and what we've been seeing from things just coming across our desk, the true impact will be the preservation of culture with AI. You know, some examples that we've come across, it's it's a little sci-fi, it's a little Black Mirror, but, you know, when we think about the creating of digital humans, you know, we created Clara, and she wasn't necessarily a preservation project, but what she demonstrates as a fully autonomous virtual being that can possess memory and retain and retrieve from that memory through data retrieval, there are a lot of opportunities for things that are getting lost in history to be preserved. One instance, someone from the state of New Zealand reached out from the State Department about the Maori culture, which is the indigenous culture in New Zealand. And they were saying that a lot of their culture is being lost with Mm -hmm. each of the elders that are passing. And that if I can make an avatar that was like an elder Maori, elder that just possessed all of the knowledge of the culture that they can add to this avatar and add to this knowledge base, everything from stories and recipes and customs and traditions you know, Canadian and I, you know, have mutual colleagues in the hip hop space, you know, that that can serve very much the same thing, where we can preserve a lot of what we're losing in hip hop from a lot of our OGs passing away and a lot of the icons and, and capturing those stories, not just the music, but just like the background, you know, the, everything that led up to those iconic moments and how the culture was even created. A lot of that could be preserved in these virtual AI powered environments and could be recalled by having a non, non-scripted conversation with this AI that can tap into this knowledge base of the entire, you know, now we're 50 years of hip hop. And that's how we preserve it for the next 50. You know, and those are just a couple examples that that we've been working on, you know, directly, but I'm, I'm sure that there's Wikitongs is not our project, but they asked me to be on their board. They're a nonprofit trying to preserve 3,000 lost languages. And they asked, how can language models help them with that technology and with that cause. So, you know, we're trying to put them in touch with OpenAI and see how we can help them. Saying in hip hop, so there's Kendrick Lamar, there's Lupe, you know, there's a number of artists, The Weeknd, Drake, who have been, you know, some people would call it experimentation. Some people would call it, you know, some new form of artistic co-creation, right? So whether you dismiss it or you put it in one box as experimenting or this is a new genre or a new way of artists actually creating art, because I'm actually an artist myself, right? So again, like what is a creative process? It's intangible. I can just blah, and here's an idea. And the only way that that idea is out of my head and into reality is because, you know, either it's sound, it's visual, it's tangible, you can touch it. Right. And now AI is also multimodal. So what that also means is a myriad different ways in which one idea could then what if the same rap lyric, what if the same line was written in a cadence like Shakespeare? What if the same line was was put back in ancient Egypt? Like there's so many ways in which, yes, a human being can be influenced. It's beautiful to be a creative person. Like it's just like, whoa, you're just overtaken by it. Right. But It's going to, I think, when you look at human history and what culture means throughout time, right? Like whether they were carving a a vase, 
right? Or a sculpture, right? Or King Tut, you know, like the Sphinx. It's been a, a logical progression and it's just been like an increasing parabola, but pretty steady, right? It's not like we've just evolutionary, like jumped hundreds of years in, in like a week, right? You know, the blues, jazz, hip hop. They're talking about like almost a hundred years of evolution of black music to get to the hip hop. And then even with hip hop, then we have trap, right? But I think with AI, the, the notion of genre or genres, the notion of what rap could sound, look, or feel like, or any culture for that matter. Like, I was just at the 30-year anniversary of the Wu-Tang Clan, and RZA's daughter and wife are doing this new mix of hip-hop and country music. That's still analog. That's still, you know, web one, <laughs> web two. That's not even in the AI space, right? So then someone can look at that and say, oh, wow, look what they are doing. How could I do something even more expansive? Instead of collaborating with my daughter, I'm going to collaborate with AI. So I think the sky's the limit. And I think neuroplasticity-wise, like our actual human brains, and this is why machine learning is literally mirroring human learning, right? So our neuroplasticity can also evolve rapidly to appreciate this new art that is being co-created with AI. And I think that's also going to be a part of the conversation in terms of how do you appreciate <laughs> this co-created AI human on the cusp of the singularity creativity when we are still absorbing it, you know, and then there's the metaverse, which is a whole other notion of immersing yourself to then appreciate, you know, NFTs, that, that whole gamut of Web3, I think, is also going to ironically influence a person like me, you, whoever, who's also on that journey of, I have this idea, I need to write it down, I need to draw it out, I need to beatbox it, and boom, it's an album, it's a painting. But I think that whole process is going to change because of AI yeah. in ways that we can't predict yet. I'll chime in a little bit as well from because I think those are some great examples of how culture is going to be shaped and really distinct cultures as well. But I guess in, in broader sense, culture and society, I'm curious and really excited to see how AI will impact. We're already sort of seeing this in just a lot of the conversations of, you know, AI versus humans, man versus machine, and like how we're going to, you know, change the way we believe certain content is real and how that will impact trust and how that will impact you know, relationships with governments, relationships with companies, relationships with each other. And so culture at large is definitely going to be shifted because of that. And we're already seeing a lot of that. And we're anticipating a lot of it to happen in this next year, especially it being a huge election year, especially a lot of disinformation, misinformation already happening within certain activities around the world right now in conflicts. We're experiencing that. We're watching it from the front row of how culture is being reshaped and how culture is changing just from a trust aspect and relationship aspect. I think even around the world, different societies will have different relationships with AI, and some of them are more welcoming than others. And that will impact the way that their structures and infrastructure is going to be built. So not only from a cultural standpoint of how certain societies are welcoming to it and embracing it in their everyday lives, but also the way that cities are being built and certain products are being developed and how it's going to be influencing what we do and how we shop and how we chat with one another and, and consume certain things. And so I think AI is a big piece of that. And I know that we're at risk of always talking about this new big shiny object as a 
you know, the hype cycle around it, but truly we're seeing a lot of the implications of AI really permeate through different industries. And I think that's what I'm most excited about is kind of seeing just people discovering it and testing it out and all the great work that Create Labs is even doing, you know, and exploring and sort of theorizing what can happen. I know there's a lot of scary things that we need to consider about it as well that are very real if we're not responsible enough with it. We're at a point right now where we're seeing a lot of this stuff change in front of our eyes. So I think if we look back at this in like two to three years, we will look back and see that, you know, so much of what we're talking about today has really changed uh, what we're doing and how we're living. A couple things with regards to culture that I think is exciting with AI is really making history as, you know, several people referenced, making it more livable, you know, not just something on a page and really being able to breathe and inhibit those spaces and understand, you know, what has happened in the past and how it affects culture now and moving forward. And I think that will be very enticing, you know, particularly for the young generation where, you know, the civil rights movement was just something on pages, quite honestly, you know, for a lot of people right now where in this environment, you know, there can be more opportunities to interact and really delve deep, you know, and understand and learn and see the connections to modern day. And then, okay, how do I want to apply that for things that I'm trying to do in the future, you know, moving forward. I also think culture is so much experiential, you know, in so many ways. And AI can have the opportunity to, you know, present more more opportunities for things like that where you don't physically have to be at an event or in a particular place or a setting, you know, and can go into these different rooms or these different experiences, you know, and really experience the culture and feel the culture. And I think particularly, you know, being in the U.S., we have such a um, U.S. view sometimes of the world. And, you know, as you were talking about New Zealand and, you know, some of the commonalities that are happening there. I've been to Australia and, you know, with the Aboriginals and there's a lot of shared experiences that people just don't know about or haven't had access to. So I think those are things that can also really have a profound effect, you know, on the culture and really change the way that people view the world, see the world, see themselves in the world that's, you know, a little more holistic. We now have a critical mass of people who have access to technology literally in their pockets. So that has now become a norm. And so why is there going to be a barrier with AI, especially when OpenAI and, and other companies are now making it no code and they're making it so accessible? It's really going to be a global upload, unlike we have seen before. You know, they say that like what, like 300,000 hours a day is uploaded to YouTube already. So imagine when, you know, People can make so much more content on AI, which is going to be good. And then sometimes it's going to be just like utter and complete noise and chaos and like why there is an upswing of content. And then last thing I'll share is sometimes I look at people and I go, oh, my God, that's the Internet. Like they're literally walking as if they have the ring light or they actually do have the ring light. The Internet used to be this treat that you did before you went to bed. And it was this thing that was like fun. But now the Internet is now narrating for us how to live, how to hack life. Like, imagine what AI is going to do to that same degree. We're still dealing with social media, like what the impact of social media is on the culture. So imagine now AI, again, how AI is going to curate for us how to live just like social media is and just like the internet is in terms of trends that then go viral, that then becomes the norm of how I think I should walk and talk and breathe IRL.
literally in real life. We have to say that now because of the social media and the internet. And let's pivot really quickly to diversity. What is the role of marketing in diversity and economic empowerment? There's already insights, right? There's a lot of personal data and a lot of companies that are saying, you know, we are going to give you this return on this investment, your KPIs, you know, oh my goodness. And now AI, whoa, you know, look out for more, you know, sales, satisfied customers, impressions on websites, click adding to cart, purchasing, like all the charts are up, right? And that's the goal, right? But to get to that goal, people are not a monolith. People are, again, who they are in terms of an actual human being. And there also are different identities. And we've learned now that people love their identity. They love who they are. They, they are their own brand and their own brand is their identities, whether it's their gender, their race, their class, their vegan, you know, like, like what, like things that you've never even brought up before is like literally their LinkedIn profile. I'm vegan on their LinkedIn profile, right? So when people are this serious about who they are and how they live and how, whether you call that, you know, virtue signaling or not, it's very important to them. And how can we get even more nuance, not about data harvesting for the sake of data, like Sometimes some of that data you don't need. Sometimes the data you do need is who that person is and what's important to them and how can they be spoken to by your brand because other brands have not. I think that there are some examples of brands that do that, that are in control of the narrative, that are ahead of the culture, that set the trend. And there are some brands that are just like, I'm the brand, like you're going to come shop with me because your mother did and your father did and, and your grandparents did and it's in your cabinet right now, you're going to get it. And I think that those are not safe <laughs> because everyday conversations are evolving, especially now when you're looking at all the geopolitical global conflicts that are happening. So the reevaluation of how important a brand is a day-to-day political cycle, zeitgeist, evolutionary ongoing conversation. And that is happening racially, gender-wise, pay gap-wise, right? So how are we able to understand who people are, echo that sentiment, and say, okay, we care about that too, or you can still experience that same level of pleasure, immediacy, urgency, whatever that is, through our brand. And now there's people who, even more so than ever, are multiracial. They're multiracial. They're third generation. They're fourth generation. So it's like identity, like every generation we're in America is an identity on top of an identity on top of an identity. How are brands able to pivot to say, who needs to be included into this conversation that's never been included now? Another big diversity push now is for menopause. Oh, look at that. Women, they go through this. How can we now market to them? So again, when I think diversity, Sometimes in America, we think race and we think gender, sexual orientation, and that's it. And what you're seeing now is brands that are able to pivot to speak about an identity and a need. And AI obviously can also help in terms of leveraging those insights. We can't just rely on AI, press a button, boom. We all still need to think so that we can pivot. And the pivot is going to be into being more nuanced and more caring and careful about who people actually are and again what they need and when you do those two things and they feel like it's authentic and it's not a sell then they will buy 
based off of the day-to-day conversations you have with brands, what does sustainable economic empowerment progress and practices look like? Like, how do you keep that momentum versus, like you said earlier on in this pod, once a year or one moment, you know, a month? What's sustainable practice look like for a brand? You know, it, it's really, and I always talk about, we're not just doing tentpole marketing. Like I say it, you know, frequently because the tentpole moments are when you should be coming in to augment the presence that you already have, not just first appearing and making your claim and making your stance. So it's really around having a consistent presence with those audiences and recognizing that they are a vital part of the consumer chain, you know, that you work in. So not doing things from a one-off perspective, but from a strategic perspective that is always lathering throughout the year. And that's where, you know, with economic empowerment, while I sit on the investment team, you know, we've had to be very intentional of it can't just be on the investment side. It has to be on the strategy side. It has to be on the planning side. It has to be on the data side. It's got to go throughout the process. So all the stakeholders are there in the room writing the strategy and making sure it flows throughout that. Because when it becomes more natural like that, it's not always, it's not seen as an additional lift per se oh, this is how we should be doing business on a regular basis. This is how we should be speaking to these consumer segments and these consumer audiences. So it's really, you know, about getting in early on the process versus, okay, we're now ready to buy. Can you make sure we reach these different groups? And you're right. It's not just about any more adults 25 to 54 or Hispanic or African-American. It, it is getting more sophisticated. It's going to continue to get more sophisticated. And that's where we're going to need the data that's able to tell us, you know, all those different levers and all those different metrics moving forward. But when you're doing it in that, you know, organic way, you know, then it's going to be more, more sustainable. So it's not just show up and then pop out. It's like, I'm going to put table stakes in the ground for these different segments. And then I'm going to work to grow this business, to grow this audience, to recognize the value. Because I think that's the other thing is that a lot of times diversity marketing, and this is my opinion, people may not agree. For too many years, it was the secondary target, you know, catch it if you can, you know, add it, you know, if you have the ability, it's a driver. It's a driver. It's a main metric. That's the way we have to look at it. And so that's why we really, you know, work with our brands and our, you know, planning and strategy teams on making sure it's as far up in front of the process as possible. So for marketers, economic empowerment and diversity are critical practices, holding a weight to get it right, ethically, responsibly, impactfully. And then there's AI, which is important to test, to adopt, to get right just as well. Now, with both diversity and AI holding a great level of that responsibility and importance to succeed for marketers, how are you talking to brands about one and the other? And now I know everyone has answered this a little bit in their own way throughout this podcast, but where do brands start with succeeding in both and getting it right? Like, I, we can see the power of it. We've talked about the power of it and doing it, but where to even begin? Not to be salesy, but one of the things that we produced out of our out of Create Labs was a product called DEIGBT for that very reason, because I saw how difficult it was to approach either of these topics, because they were definitely afraid of both of them. And we tested on that in our in our recent talk um, in person at, at Carrot. And it's a way of saying, okay, I don't know how to address all of these topics based on my own background and training in this space. 
mainly because, you know, a lot of, you know, chief diversity officers that I know weren't formally trained in that role. They were just given that role. They inherited that role. They were deemed, you are now our chief diversity officer, but they went to school for marketing. They were part of the, the marketing team. They were in branding. They were in talent development. Like my good friend, Shanor, shout out to Shanor, was in talent development with me. We were both training and onboarding and they were like, you're the diversity officer now. So sometimes you need to have something to augment and scale what you don't have at at your disposal from a resource standpoint and tapping into the expertise. So you needed a, a tool powered by AI that had GPT type capabilities where you can tap into like best practices, expertise, the ever evolving language toolkit that, that constantly changes. My mother is a DEI practitioner, but she's been doing it for 30 years and people in her workshops always try and, you know, check her like, oh, you're not using the updated toolkit. She's like, Girl, I've been doing this since before it was called DEI. Just because the acronyms change, or the wording doesn't change doesn't mean the message changes, right? It's all there. But so in addition to having a resource like a GPT that you can tap into the expertise at large, the image side of it and the, the campaign strategy and, and the marketing side of it is to just make sure that, you know, in the room of five people that are evaluating, are we doing this the right way? Is the messaging appropriate? That there's a sixth entity in the room with AI to make sure that you're not forgetting, maybe unintentionally, that you're not excluding someone unintentionally, that there's, you know, populations that are being included that, you know, because even with five people in the room, you still might miss something. And that's happened historically in marketing. Like we always see a, a, you know, a billboard and we say, how did that get past (laughs) marketing review? It was because everyone said, okay, everyone gave it a thumbs up and there wasn't that additional augmented tool in the room to say, maybe not maybe check for X, Y, and Z. So sometimes we need technology to pick up where human error might let something slip. It's that simple. Especially because right now AI is multimodal, right? And so is DEI GPT, right? So the goal would be as we become literally more reflective, right? People are much more introspective than they have been before, specifically post-COVID. They're thinking about death. They're thinking about life. They're thinking about sourdough bread. They're just thinking all the time. How can we also ensure that we're reflecting back to people who they actually are? So making sure that the whatever the multimodal product is, let's say visually, hair texture, facial features, you know, skin tones or are more accurate and authentic because people have had two years to study things they never thought that they would study. So people are way more experts on a lot more things than we give people credit for. And as marketers, we need to be on our heels and thinking in the back of our head, is this really passing the muster like it used to? Maybe, probably not. Everyone's a sociologist. Everyone is a psychologist. Everyone can sit there and diagnose if you're a narcissist. So at this point, how can we ensure that as we continue to leverage this data to make our marketing, advertising, whatever it is, in your face more, right? And and ad tech and all these different ways in which ads are becoming more and more immersive. We also have to pull back and say, immersive for who? Resonating to what end? I also think data privacy is huge. That as we rush to utilize all of this data, where is it held? How secure is it? 
And then also, how are we prompting, right? So Bron and I have been talking to various companies. And one of the things we talk about is how do you prompt, right? So if you want to make sure that these multimodal AI models are creating more diverse looking people, what words are you using to prompt it to say, I want someone fat? So, you know, every once in a while you'll see like a speech, you know, for some government official and you see the notes. And sometimes people cringe like, oh, that's what they meant to say. Like, the shorthand can sometimes be extremely problematic, right? It has long, complicated, longer conversation based on some shorthand. So that can also be applied to the prompts that you're using to generate these more inclusive images and language. And initially... The way that you do it is you list all the words and then you say, okay, this is problematic. How can we then prompt to get these same images or get this same outcome, but not using problematic language so that moving forward, machine learning knows, oh, okay, that means you want this, but we're not going to use that word to get to this same image that's going to resonate with the population that might be historically marginalized or stereotyped in a very problematic way. Because the goal is to not get canceled, yes? So... And a last point on this is that the overcorrecting is also a problem too, because sometimes when we try and generate, you know, images of color or things that are culturally representative of like black and brown populations, when I just type in the word black woman in a model, Mm -hmm. it'll get Mm -hmm. flagged, right? And it's because they're trying to overcorrect too. They're like, oh, this seems racial. I'm like, no, 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 it's intentionally trying to produce a woman of color, you have to allow me to say black woman, <laughs> you know, and it, it flags it because I said black and woman in the same sentence. So, and I tell this to the AI systems and, and to the developers behind it. And they're like, what do you want me to do? We're trying to correct for it and flag for its misuse. I'm like, there's nuance. You have to pay attention to like, you can say it, but are you saying it the right way? Are you using these terms? Are you using the the phrasing of this population for the appropriate reasons, you can't just flag any use of this population in your model. That's not good either. Mm-hmm. No, and, and Devo on our brand safety team, you know, that that's a key responsibility for that team because to your point, it's about the context, you know, and you have to make sure that the context is recognized in the right way. I also think with AI and like the tools Create Labs is doing with DEI chat, GPT can help take some of the fear element because some brands are just afraid to jump into the space and afraid because they're afraid they're going to do something wrong or get called out for it. So that six tech partner you talked talked about being in the, you know, physically being in the room can be a way to help alleviate some of that fear because the fear, and then you never engage the audience, then you lose. You have to jump in, you know, you and, and mis- mistakes are going to be made. We'd love to say that no mistakes are going to be made. They're going to happen. But I think when people, you know, when the consumers see the intentionality of the brand and the genuineness of, you know, trying to do the right thing and how you put that all together, then any blips that you may have, you know, you can get past. These tools, I think, will help with that, you know, because that fear factor is real and can stop a lot of uh, brands from jumping in to a space that they need to be in. This notion of colorblindness again, you know, oh, I just don't want to. But... (laughs) A lot of the brands have skewed to only one color, right? So as we continue to open up the aperture of what a brand could look like in terms of the people that are represented by that brand, we do have to inject back into it, like I said before, identity. 
how do people identify themselves and be able to navigate? Is that a problematic stereotype of a word? Or is it just, this is what these people call themselves. And so in order for us to see them represented in the Levi's, the Gucci, the Fendi, whatever the brand is, we do have to type it out. And maybe what brands do is that they're even, they, they create content about that. Hey, you know, we're dedicated to diversity. And so, you know, we are using AI and let's take a peek under the hood. How, do, how does this ad, how does this marketing campaign get made? Here's our team. Here's the intention. Here's what we were thinking. Here's the storyboard. Here are the prompts. What do you think? Make the audience a part of it. That creates a fandom because then they're invested in the process and then they're loyal to your brands. Because they're like, see, we like it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, also, just at a macro view from my perspective, and just, I think even just from the agency side of things, I can see a world very easily where we start to trust these systems in place without asking what's behind it. What's Where's the data coming from? What's the algorithm? And how are they making decisions? And I think that's, you know, what even these regulations with the executive orders trying to do as well and all the different types of AI acts around the world are trying to get behind is understanding how AI systems are making those decisions. Because even in ad tech today, we don't know the guts behind how the sausage is made. And we don't know how all these decisions are being placed when it is targeting, right? Like maybe you see a bronze name and then you're like, oh, let's end language his Hulu experience. That's not right, right? So what are those signals that we're, that we're actually ingesting and how are we making decisions for our, to be better brand stewards for our clients? And so from our perspective, it is having, again, conversations like these and, and understanding that if we are going after a specific audience or even just the general audience and being more personalized, working with partners like Create Labs, working with partners that Mark and his team are vetting for us to understand that there is rigor going behind what they do, not only their tech, but the data that they're, that they're ingesting in there. Because these are so many nuanced things and all these examples that we just discussed that are so important to make the decision of, you know, where an impression lands and how a message is being conveyed at the right moment. And so it is our job as the agency to, to vet these things and have these conversations and to work with the right folks that are very educated and dedicated to this space to making sure that we're doing the right thing. So just a pleasure and an honor to be able to have these conversations with Mark and his team and with Abron and, and, and Kennedy. So yeah, I, I think that's the main thing from an agency perspective, how we're, we should be seeing diversity, especially in the AI world, because we're going to move to a place where we just trust the AI. And again, we, we trust Google. It's like, oh, what, what did you answer on? Where did you get that? Oh, Google told me this, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a search form and it's just kind of scraping things. And so now when we start to have these these uh, fields and text boxes just sort of giving us answers and we're acting off of that and soon enough that will be automated into a chain events of whatever you ask this bot, it will chain set off a chain reaction to many other bots to do other things and give those instructions. We need to investigate the data behind it and making sure it's representative and inclusive to, to the different audiences that make up um, America as well. So. Well, I know that we are wrapping up on time, but before we do, I'd love to do some lightning round questions to this crew. So this never ends up being as short as we want it. So we kind of call it rolling thunder at this point, but we will try to do one word answers. Let's see. Let's write the headline for 2024. It was the year of... Multimodal AI. Elections in the age of collaborating with an AI democracy. 
I'll say mine was uh, the year of hopeful chaos. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say seeing real truth. Best piece of content recently consumed. Ooh, I got TV and film. I have Loki, the Marvel show, and Creator, the AI sci-fi film that just recently came out. I heard Creator is so good. I haven't seen it yet. It's on my list, though. Yeah. My friend, producer Tracy Baker Simmons, uh, she produced the Conversations Project, which is on Hulu. Again, it's all about diversity and moving into, you know, a post-George Floyd reckoning about the next steps for people of color. The shot in Harlem. Mark, you got anything for us? It was, I don't have the title right, but it was a six-part series about rebuilding Black Wall Street in Tulsa oh. and tying in tying in both the impact of the past with the renovation efforts of the future. And the producer's going to kill me for not remembering the name of that, but it was a really informed series. We were going to sign Stay Tuned for Black Wall Street. So oh, okay. hey. that's a teaser. Hot off the press news. We like that. We always like breaking news in the pen. Favorite brand diversity initiative and or campaign? The recent one I liked was the NFL one. I liked that the NFL is putting the countries of origin on the players' helmets. It matters a lot for representation seeing, you know, an NFL player and getting to that level, you know, professional football from your country. And especially when there's not a lot of them. Jonathan Feliciano, who's on the 49ers, was the one that I've identified that had the Puerto Rican flag on his helmet. He went to the University of Miami, grew up in Miami, Puerto Rican, homeless too. He was actually homeless in Miami and now he's mm-hmm. balling with the 49ers. So it's great when you get to follow their story and know that they came from where you came from. Love that. I would say the Nike Air Force, the the movie and the summer of Air Force Ones. I think I have Air Force Ones in my ears right now. They're, they're coming out of everybody's part. I, I mean, like, I did. I don't think I could blink twice without seeing somebody with Air Force Ones this year. So I think it was an extension of the movie and the backstory of Michael Jordan to negotiate that deal with Nike. And people were like, yo, <laughs> it really, res- again, it, it resonated with them. And then the last one is Gaining Ground, which is a documentary produced by John Deere about the legacy of underfunding of Black farmers and mm. also called Heirs Property, which is this very nebulous, disgusting way in which families are torn apart based on deeds and very savvy lawyers and judges that can find one family member that doesn't want to be bothered with whatever is going on down south in that land over there. And then somebody can come in and swoop up all of that land. And so Gaining Ground is a deep dive on the issues, and also policy solutions. I'm going to go back. It was rebuilding Wall Street. I had to correct that for the record. There you go. (laughs) Hey, Google that. (laughs) Mark, favorite brand diversity initiative and or campaign? For me, the one that still resonates, you know, even though it's it's been around for a couple of years, but P&G's The Talk and The Look. That just hit a spot, particularly the look where I think every Black man could relate to that entire series of episodes. And I even caught myself with that, not realizing that he was a judge, you know, at the end. It was just really very powerful. I just think that's one of the best ones to come out that still has relevance, you know, today. Most interesting thing you've asked ChatGPT this year. 
<laughs> I'm going to take one for the team because there may be some people who are listening to this that are like me that have yet to put something in the chat GPT. So I'm on it. I'll put it out there that it's on the holiday to-do list, you know, to see what's out there. But, you know, probably one of the questions, you know, I'll ask it just to see what comes up is, you know, how do we get truth to be seen? Because I think for me, that's just one of the scariest things right now is you can have facts out there and it's not sinking in, you know, with people. So not something I'm sure that ChatGPT can answer, but I'm curious to see what comes up <laughs> to figure out, you know, how can we at least make some incremental steps? I did some traveling this year, and I think the vision model is super slept on. I don't think people fully grasp what the potential is of, of these vision models. So I visited a thousand-year-old church in Prague, took pictures of some tablets that I fed to ChatGPT and asked it to translate it or to tell me the history. And uh, I was just in San Francisco at part of the OpenAI Dev Day, and the after party was at this contemporary art museum, and there was ancient artifacts from the Mayans and I was taking pictures of tablets there from the Mayan civilization and did the same thing. It broke down who the god was in the tablet and the approximate date and history and, and age of, of the tablet as well. It's just traveling with that in your pocket to just take pictures as you go along your journeys is super powerful. Yeah, I think I, I love this question because I don't, to your point, Ron, people don't know how powerful the tool can be and what you can do and ask and learn from it. So it's one of my favorite questions because on the other end, I think I've broken my chat GPT a couple of times. I've asked it multiple ways to say different words and I needed inspiration for like writing components for marketing. And it, it gave up on me a couple of times already. And then I had to ask it again. And I was like, do not give me attitude. Like, oh. I think it was done with me. I think it wanted to be like, no more. No more. You didn't. You, you got twenty words. Figure it out. Yeah. And by ChatGPT, Chelsea, you mean Dentsu GPT, right? You're using our Dentsu instance. I'm using all of them right now to try to figure out who's got better words for me. So yes, yes. Mike, how about you? Most interesting thing you've asked ChatGPT this year, or Dentsu GPT? Yeah, maybe not the most interesting, but the most recent. I was just trying to see how clever it could be, and if I was, if I could outthink it. And so I was just asking it riddles. I was asking it to give me riddles. And then I was asking it to break down the answer to the riddle to see like how logically somebody could answer it. And so I was doing that for like a good hour. I just kind of looked up at the clock and I was like, dang, I've been just talking to this bot about riddles and trying to guess how they got to this riddle. And then I took the riddles, put them into Google to see if they were actually original or if they were just regurgitating what they found online. And what they what what it found online and yeah it was just it was fun it was just sort of, sort of like a test to see the logic and rationale of some of these language models. Mike, that's the most on brand answer you've given us on this pod ever. <laughs> Thank you for that. Trying to break it, love it. <laughs> All time favorite band or song? Janet Jackson, hands down. And I'll share a bit. I have seen her in concert thirty eight times. Mm. That's impressive. That is impressive. I would say Sade, and little known fact is that the band is called Sweetback, okay? Oh. And my favorite song is Sweetest Taboo, followed by It's Never As Good As The First Time. <laughs> Thank you, Sade, for these sobering lyrics that have sung so well. I saw her in concert, and John Legend opened for her. That uh, was a great tour. That Lover's Rock tour. Mm -hmm. that yes. Was, yep. Yep. yep, good times. I'm a big Radiohead fan, so I would say Radiohead, but as far as song, 
I'm also a big Black Star fan. So I'll say Respiration by Mostef, Quali, and Common. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'd say my favorite song and band are, are separate, which kind of doesn't make sense a little bit. But I would say its song is Tribe Called Quest, Scenario. The group is UGK. One thing people don't know about you, but should. That of four, Puerto Rican Don't Crack. And uh, I used to be a B-boy back in the days. I'm extremely competitive, even if it's tic-tac-toe. I will scream. I will throw up the table of the checkers. <laughs> Uno is a thing. Draw four, okay? Like, I will stack the draw twos and the draw fours and the reverse. It sounds like, like we need to have a Dentsu-sponsored <laughs> game night. Yeah. 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 Just to see. I want yelling, flipping of the boards. Yeah. My answer to that is actually that I'm like a self-proclaimed un- undefeated champion of Canadian Four. So Canadian, I'm oh. coming to you. Oh, oh wow. Well, touche. Korean Labs is throwing an event in a couple of weeks. Y'all are all invited, but I might drop a Uno deck on each table oh. just to see what kind of wars start, just to get it popping. Mike, what do you got for us? Oh yeah, that mine was just that. I'm an undefeated Connect Four. Oh, yes. That was it. <laughs> I mean, I'm a fairly open book. If you know me, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you already know. So, yeah, come get these L's, Kanani. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm just saying yep to playing. I'm not saying yes to losing because don't let any of this fool you. I am a beast. Thank you. Okay. All right. We'll okay. see. We'll I see. am from Brooklyn. Okay. But I live in Harlem. That's to tell you the level of betrayal. Okay. <laughs> and how I will use that to my advantage. The rest if of this I'm podcast is going to be us trash talking shows if you don't end it, because we will. Yeah. Well, I'm trying. Yes. I'm trying. But actually, I'm, I'm enjoying it, it too. The tension point, you know, wow. we will keep the we will keep this audience posted on how this ends up in 2024. The one thing I'll add was since we were talking about travel early, wherever I go around the world, you will find me. If there's a lounge that exists, you will find me there. And if there isn't a lounge, it's probably an airport. I'm not going to be that. I am 100% hardcore serious about that. Bam. Favorite lounge? Centurion. Okay. I like the Centurion, but I got to say the the Delta Lounge at LGA is... They they were off the chain on that. They really, they really were. But... Randomly, I had like the best donut, powdered donut, strawberry jam donut there. And I've been trying to figure out where they got it from. And I have not mm. seen that in like months. And I'm distraught. Tell me you've written emails. That's when no, we know you're I've desperate. Gone, I've gone far as asking the people who work there, like, do you know where the bakery is? Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, Brian, Kanani, Mark, Mike, thank you so much for joining. I cannot thank you enough. This was a great episode. And we look forward to having you back real soon. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having us. You.